Now in our study through the Bible, book by book, it brings us to the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And uh, we call it the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Uh, written to a church which was only about uh, uh, a few months old, as uh, made up of Christians who had just come to Christ under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. A young, struggling, yet vigorous church, and uh, yet facing very difficult and pressing problems. And this is a delightful letter and a revealing letter because it shows the heart of the apostle as he dealt with these new Christians, and it also shows the struggles that were present in the early church. Sometimes we get very distorted conceptions of these early Christians. I know there's a a tendency on our part to regard them as always triumphant, always pressing the battle with vigor and power and winning great uh, victories in Christ's name. And there was this, but they also had very severe problems. And some of them are reflected in this first letter of Paul's to the Thessalonians. This letter was written about 50 A.D. And therefore may well be the first Christian writing that we have in the New Testament. Because it may surprise you to know that most scholars feel that the Gospels were written about this same time or shortly afterward. Though there are some who hold that the Gospel of Matthew and perhaps of Mark appeared about 43 or 45 A.D. But at any rate, we have one of the earliest of the Christian writings here in this first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. And uh, you have the account of Paul's founding of this church in the 17th chapter of Acts. You remember after his experience in Philippi, when he and uh, Barnabas were thrown into prison there because of their preaching of the gospel, and the earthquake came and shook down the prison doors and freed the prisoners, and Paul then was freed by the Roman magistrates. He left Philippi and went to Thessalonica. Thessalonica is still one of the major cities of Greece. Many of the places where Paul preached have crumbled into ruins, but Thessalonica is still an active, bustling metropolis. It was then the capital of Macedonia. It's now in Greece proper, and it still bears the name very similar to uh, the name it had in Bible times. It's called Salonica now, or a new name, a new spelling recently proposed is Thessalonica which uh, returns it very close to what we have in the scriptures. We learn from Acts 17 that Paul was only there about three weeks, and then persecution broke out, and he had to leave the city for his own safety. And he went down to uh, Athens, and there we have the account of Paul's preaching on Mars Hill. But he didn't stay long in Athens, and from Athens he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how these new Christians were doing. For he was very disturbed about them and felt that perhaps the persecution they were undergoing would drive them from their faith. He himself went on to Corinth and there where he founded the, the church of, uh, of the Corinthians after several months of hard, difficult labor. And finally, Timothy returned to him and joined him at Corinth and brought word of how these Thessalonians were doing. And they brought word of some of the problems they were facing. 
Now, as you read this little letter through, you can see some of these problems. And I think you'll recognize some of them as uh, the kind of problems that you face, too. For one thing, the Jews were slandering Paul. They were saying that he was not really an apostle. And wherever the apostle went, he seemed to be uh, hounded by a, a group of uh, Jews who spread this rumor about him. Simply because he was not one of the twelve, the original twelve. They said he wasn't genuine. And everywhere Paul went, he had to face this problem. And thus also with the Thessalonians. And furthermore, the pagans of, of uh, Thessalonica were persecuting the Christians. And uh, very severely threatening them and taking their property away. And these early Christians were up against it for the cause of Christ. Only three or four weeks old, perhaps, in the Lord. And yet they were called upon to endure some severe persecution. And in the city of Thessalonica, sexual standards were very low. Now, this is a problem we're increasingly facing today. For in that city, as in all the Greek cities, uh, sexual promiscuity was common was regarded as even a religious right, and those who tried to live lives of chastity or continence were regarded as as freaks, uh, as, uh, as being uh, uh, something wrong with them, uh, in some way not being normal people, abnormal individuals. And therefore there was great pressure upon these new Christians to fall into line with the common sex practices of their day, just as there is today in California. Then, as the major problem of this church, the second coming of Jesus Christ was greatly misunderstood. They had heard something about Christ's coming, because the apostle had evidently told them, but they hadn't got it straight. And because they were confused about this, they had a problem, which we'll develop as we come into the letter a bit. And uh, also, this produced another grave problem in the church. Some of them were so expecting Christ to come back that they had actually stopped working and were waiting for him to come. And since they weren't earning a living, somebody had to take care of them, and they were leeches on the rest of the congregation. And others had to take care of them, so that this was a problem in the church of Thessalonica. Uh, then six, there were some tension developing between the congregation and the church leaders, which needed some admonition to settle. And finally, there were those who were somewhat indifferent to the Holy Spirit's work among them, and to the truth of God as it was being proclaimed in the Scriptures. Now, do those sound familiar? Many of them are up to date, aren't they? And we can consider ourselves very much in a similar circumstance, in many ways at least, to this church at Thessalonia. Uh, the letter itself divides into two major divisions very simply. The first is a personal section, chapters 1 through 3, where the apostle is unfo- uh, just unloading his heart to them, opening his heart up to them, about his relationship to them. And the second is a very practical section in which he's giving them advice on how to behave in the midst of the pressures in which they live. In this first section, chapters 1 through 3, you have a personal word. And this is perhaps one of the most revealing and illuminating sections on the heart of this mighty apostle that you have in the scriptures. 
how his heart just pours out for these early Christians. Undoubtedly, he's afraid that they will have misunderstood the fact that he left Thessalonica and left them to undergo persecution. And he reminds them here that he had just come through a terrible time of persecution himself in Philippi and that he went to another period in Berea and that his own heart among them was one of deep concern for them. And it's, it's a reflection here of the, of the heart and concern of Paul for these people. You find it spelled out for you, if you'd like the key to this, in the third verse of chapter 1, where Paul begins his letter on this note. He says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Those were the three things that marked these Thessalonican Christians. Their work of faith, their labor of love, and their endurance or steadfastness of hope. Now, we're not left to guess as to specifically what these three things were. You'll find them detailed more clearly for you in the tenth verse, ninth and tenth verse of the same chapter. For there we read in the latter part of verse uh, 9, how you turn to God from idols. That was the work of faith. They turned to God from these pagan idols they were worshiping. And they, and to serve a living and true God. That's their labor of love. They became an available instrument to the love of God. To shed it forth to those in need, both psychologically and physically. And third, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And there is the expression of the patience of their hope, waiting for his Son from heaven. Now, interestingly enough, those three things also form uh, the uh, subject matter of the first three chapters. So you have a, a little outline built right into the text here that will guide you in understanding the opening chapters of First, Thess of first Thessalonians. The, the work of love, uh, the work of faith, the uh, labor of love, and the patience of hope. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. If we were to put this in modern language today, what happened to these early Christians, we'd have said they dropped out and tuned in and turned on. Because that's exactly what happened to them. They dropped out of the stream of society, the world in which they lived. That is, not out of contact with it. Not at all. In fact, they shed the gospel, of, they spread the gospel abroad all through the whole area, and Paul commends them for that. But they dropped out of the attitudes and the reactions and the system and the power structures and the values of the world in which they live. And they tuned in to the grace of God in Jesus Christ and received the word. And Paul commends them for that. He says, you receive the word with all readiness of heart. As it, uh, and uh, he said, not uh, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men but as what it really is, the Word of God. That's inhelpful, isn't it? Because here the Apostle is reminding us that the Word he spoke was not the Word of men. It came not in Word only, he says, but in power and by the Holy Ghost. So it is not merely his thoughts recorded for us, 
but the inspiring of the Spirit of God, the Word of God. And then they turned on as they waited with expectation for the coming of the Son of God. They had a reason for living. They had a purpose. They had a hope in the midst of the hopelessness around them. It's interesting that an archaeological excavation working in this very city of Thessalonica has turned up a, an ancient first century graveyard. And in that graveyard, among the pagan tombstones, they found one which was inscribed with these words in Greek, No Hope. But here is a church in the midst of that city where there are those who have found the endurance of hope. They're looking for the coming of the Son of God. And that's what keeps the heart calm in the midst of perils and persecutions and difficulties and disasters. That's what makes it possible to see the world apparently coming apart at the seams and maintain quietness and calmness. God is in control and he knows what he's doing and he's moving it to a goal. And thus Paul encourages these Thessalonians with these words. Chapter 1, the work of faith, tells how they believed the gospel and received it and turned to God from idols. Chapter 2 is a wonderful description of the labor of love. Not their labor this time, but Paul's. And here you have a marvelous description of his ministry. Verse 9, you remember our labor and toil, brethren. We worked night and day that we might not burden any of you while we preached to you the gospel of God. And he says, you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to lead a life worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And they did that. Or in verse 14, he says, you became, you brethren became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus, which are in Judea. The service, the labor of love. And chapter 3 is an account of how he sent Timothy to them. And Timothy brought back word of the persecution they were undergoing and yet of their steadfastness in the midst of it. And there you have a wonderful description, likewise, of the patience of hope, permitting them to endure difficulties even though they're persecuted. Now, chapter 4 and 5 is the practical section of this letter. And you have it divided into four brief sections, which take up the problems that were confronting this church. The first exhortation the apostle gives is that of living cleanly in the midst of a sex-saturated society. These words have great importance to us today who have to live in the same kind of a society. And he begins by showing them that he, reminding them that he had taught them how to live. I like the beginning of this chapter four. It's very instructive. Finally, brethren, we beseech and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and to please God just as you are doing, you do so more and more. Now, you see, he hadn't taught them, as many people think Christianity teaches, that you ought to live a good, clean life. It's no good just teaching that. Buddhism teaches that. 
And other faiths teach that you ought to live a good life, a moral life. But that isn't what Christianity says alone. It teaches you how you ought to live a good, clean life. How it's done. And Paul reminds them that he had taught them this. How they please God. Now, what is it that pleases God? Well, what is it? What one quality of life is essential to please God? Hmm? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You see, it's a life of faith. It's a life of dependence. It's a life of expectation that the God who lives in you will manifest his life through you. That's the kind of life that pleases God. It isn't a life of you trying to do your best and struggling along to live up to a standard that you've imposed upon yourself or someone else has imposed upon you. It's a life in which you are dependent constantly upon the one who indwells you to keep you able to do and able to be what you ought to be. Therefore, it's a life of continual faith, expectation, dependence. And uh, it results, therefore, in a purity that is practiced. And you see, if Christians are practicing impurity, it's a, it's a, a clear revelation that they have not, they are not uh, practicing a life of faith. They're not living by faith. But the purity practiced is the sign of the principle perceived. Let's read this last section here of this, uh, uh, the, the, the passages that deal with this matter about uh, a purity in life. Paul says, this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from immorality. That's the will of God. And that each one of you know how to possess his vessel, literally, or possess his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like heathen who do not know God, and that no man transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we solemnly forewarned you. For God has not called us for uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this is not disregarding what an apostle has said. He's disregarding not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So it's very clear, isn't it? We're told how to live cleanly. And then the second uh, problem he takes up is this matter of living honestly. In verses 9 through 12 of chapter 4, they're to show love toward one another, and the practical manifestation of that is that every man get busy and work with his own hands and not have to depend upon somebody else for support or for help, but to mind your own affairs and work with your own hands so that you may command the respect of outsiders and be dependent on nobody. Hmm. That's practical, isn't it? Get busy, he said. Don't you be uh, uh, trying to uh, live on somebody else's welfare. You get busy. 
and work with your own hands and thus manifest a concern for somebody else besides yourself. That's what practical love is. Now in verse 14, 13 of this fourth chapter, we come to the major problem this, past, this book handles. And that's this matter about the coming of the Lord. And it runs all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. I'm not going to dwell it, on it at length, but I want to briefly summarize the argument of the apostle, because it's very helpful. We need to understand that evidently <clears throat> these Thessal Thessalonian Christians had uh, gotten the idea some way that when Jesus Christ returned to earth the second time to begin his millennial kingdom, that those who were alive when he came back and they were expecting him within their lifetime would enter with him into this kingdom. But they uh, somehow were deeply troubled that those who had died in the meantime and some already had perhaps even by persecution even had been as martyrs would somehow miss the benefits and the blessings of the millennium now this probably arose because of a misunderstanding of the doctrine of resurrection you see they were thinking in terms of one resurrection a single event which would come at the end of the millennium when the dead would be raised, the good and the bad alike, and would stand before the judgment seat of God. And there are passages, of course, that do speak, uh, that does, uh, that do speak of a resurrection to come at the end of the millennium. And so Paul helps them out by pointing out that the resurrection doesn't uh, proceed in, uh, as a single event, but there are certain uh, divisions of resurrection, groups of beings, uh, human uh, believers that are resurrected at various times, and that this is the solution to the problem that they were having. Now notice his argument. We would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that is, who have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, resurrection is going to be the answer to your problem. These who have died are going to be risen again. And they'll come back with Jesus when he comes to establish his millennial reign. Well, this presents another problem. How is it that he, they're going to come back with him bodily when these Christians have seen those same bodies placed in the grave? How can they come back with him? Ah, says the apostle, let me give you now a revelation from the Lord. And you know how he puts this? Notice how he puts this? For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord. This is an authoritative revelation that we who are alive, who are left until the coming or the parousia of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, we shall always be with the Lord. 
Therefore comfort one another with these words. In other words, there's an event, there's a uh, an aspect of the Lord's coming before his coming to establish the millennial reign. He's coming for his people. He's coming to gather those who are his to be with him in what is called in the scriptures the parousia, to use the Greek term, which means presence. And that that will come before his return to establish the kingdom. And at that time, the dead in Christ will be raised, and we which are alive will be with them, and then we all will be with him when he's ready to establish his kingdom. So you see how this answered their problem? They needn't grieve over these who have died. They'll actually precede us to be with the Lord when he comes for his own. Now, we don't know how long, from this passage at least, we don't know how long it is between that parousia and the coming to establish the kingdom. But from other passages of Scripture, we learn that it's probably about seven years in length of time. And that in the meantime occurs the great tribulation. And Paul now goes on to speak of this in the next chapter, As he's continuing in his argument, he says to them, But now as to the times and the seasons, you see, brethren, as to the time when this parousia will occur, we don't know. You have no need to have anything written to you about this, he says, for you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Nobody can set a date for this event. It's going to come suddenly, quickly, and it will begin two great chains of events. When the Lord comes in the parousia, he will begin a series of events that will uh, include all believers who will be caught up to be with him. And at the same time, he will begin an outward series of events on earth known as the Great Tribulation. And known in the Old Testament as the day of the Lord. Now there are two days we need to distinguish in scripture. The day of the Lord and the day of Christ. They both begin at exactly the same time. But they concern two distinct bodies of people. The day of Christ is uh, is what happens to us as believers with the Lord. The day of the Lord is what's happening to the world as unbelievers during the same time. And uh, it's my personal conviction that when the Lord comes for his own and the dead in Christ rise and we who are alive are caught up with them to be with the Lord, that we don't leave this planet at all. We stay here behind the scenes invisibly with the Lord directing the events of the tribulation period as they break out in great judgmental sequences upon the ones who are living as mortals upon the earth. And I think the book of Revelation is a wonderfully accurate picture of that kind of a circumstance. So the apostle says to them, now remember this, No one knows when this is going to happen. The day of the Lord's coming for his own and the beginning of this time of judgment will come like a thief in the night. When people say there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them 
as travail comes upon a woman with child and there will be no escape, no place to go, no place to hide, no other planet you can go to to get away from this. But you are not in darkness, brethren, for that day to surprise you like a thief. It will surprise the people of the world like a thief, but it needn't surprise you like a thief. Because you're looking forward to it. You ought to be expecting this, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. Therefore, what should be the practical result? Well, don't go to sleep, as others do, but keep awake and be sober. Don't act as though everything's going to go on as usual. Nothing unusual is going to happen. Be aware of what God is doing and act accordingly. That's what he's saying. Don't act as though uh, uh, God's in his heaven, all's right with the world. We can go on and just uh, business as usual. Everything's going to go along the same way. This is the unthinking way the worldling reacts. No, no. Remember... These events, when they begin to occur, these signs that Jesus gave that indicate the close approach of these events, ought to make us aware that it's time to give ourselves more than we ever have before to the work of God. Uh, Be awake and be sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, he's not talking about salvation from hell. He's talking about salvation which is to come, which we're yet waiting for. That salvation of which Paul speaks in Romans 13 when he says uh, that now is the day of salvation nearer than when we believed. That is the salvation from the wrath of God during the time of the judgment period. That's what it is in this context. For he goes right on to say, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we wake or sleep, that is, whether we we live until the coming of the Lord or die beforehand, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. See how completely he answered their problem? They needn't be discouraged or frightened or distressed, but they could go on about their business, confident that God was in charge of affairs, and that though times were difficult and hard, nevertheless, not a thing was out of control and that they could busy themselves about the work of the Lord, knowing that they were only investing themselves in a certain future. Now, the latter part of the letter, the last section, speaks not only of living confidently, but of living peacefully in the midst of these conditions. We beseech you, brethren, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them highly in love because of their work. Here's uh, some friction that was developing among some of the church leaders. And he says, don't let that happen now. Remember that these 
men are concerned about your soul's welfare. And uh, therefore, though they may have to speak rather sharply to you at times or uh, seem rather difficult about some of their decisions, it's not because they want to hurt you, it's because they want to help you. And therefore, remember that and live at peace with them and esteem them and love them because they're concerned about you. Be at peace among yourselves. And then he gives some practical exhortations of how to do that. Admonish the idle. There are these shirkers again coming in who wouldn't work. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak and be patient with them all. And most important, see that none of you repays evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to all. Wouldn't you think that's probably the most uh, frequently broken verse in Scripture? When somebody does something to us, what do we do? Wait till I get even with you. I'm going to pay him back if it's the last thing I do. And yet this is the very attitude which the Scripture denounces as a manifestation of the world and its thinking rather than the grace and truth and love of Jesus Christ. And it's extremely important that Christians act on this basis. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but seek to do good to one another and to all. Then rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances. Some of you have memorized this as a wonderful verse. For this is the will of God, says Paul, in Christ Jesus for you. Then other admonitions here, miscellaneous ones, do not quench the spirit and despise not the prophesying. And the prophets in those days were those who were simply teaching the truth that we have recorded in the New Testament. So despise not those who expound the word of God to you, and especially what it is that they expound. Don't treat it with indifference, but test everything, hold fast that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. And his final prayer for them is beautiful. May the God of peace himself, dwelling in you, sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless till the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then some closing personal admonition. What a wonderful letter this is, isn't it? And imagine all of this addressed to new Christians who are just a month or so old in the faith, yet how the apostle expected them to lay hold of these truths. Somebody said to me, why is it that Christians seem to be so slow about growing? Why is it that they seem to remain the same from year to year? Well, here's the answer. Because they're not reaching out to lay hold of truth they haven't yet experienced. There must be, as Jesus said, a constant hungering and thirsting after more. For he that hungers and thirsts after righteousness will be filled. And it's this that the world is waiting to see, and especially in these last days. Well, there you have the first Thessalonian letter. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer.
Our Heavenly Father, in many ways we recognize the days in which we live as very similar to the days in which this letter was written. And yet in one way we must admit it's strikingly different. From our vantage point of 20 centuries away, we can look back and see that though their hopes burned brightly for the coming of the Lord then, they were a long way from the goal. But how much more surely are these promises uh, true for us? How much more certainly can we be that we are in the days in which our Lord is moving world events to presage his coming? Lord, help us to walk in the light of this, not ignorantly, not foolishly, not indifferently, as we've been exhorted and admonished by the Apostle Paul, but uh, earnestly and soberly and sanely and intelligently, giving ourselves to first things first. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.